last week the one recorded event that took place in Jesus' life, the milestone that we saw last week, and the reason why that one event is recorded and none of his other childhood really is uh, recorded. And today now, we move to the bulk of the gospel, which is the ministry of Jesus. We now embark um, on his ministry. However, true to form, uh, and in great historical detail, like Luke does here, and Matthew also records this, and Mark also records part of it, but Luke in great detail here. We don't begin with Jesus, but rather we begin with John. Uh, John is known as John the Baptist. Now, I hope you know this, but let me clarify this. John did not belong to the Baptist denomination. All right? Okay? Uh, He's not the first Baptist that was out there. You'd be surprised how many preachers actually preach that. It's pretty scary, actually, when you think about it. Really, his name should have been more John the Baptizer. He baptized. He was one of the first to come. Now, water rituals and rituals like that were very common in the Jewish culture. Baptism was very common. Um, But but John then, uh, having the name the Baptist, meaning that he baptized Uh, those who he preached to, and we will uh, see that more as we go in. But here's what I want to do to to get us started as we move into this. I want to again draw your attention to something very specific in in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. I want to jump in and I want to show you once again how meticulously historical Luke is. And this is so very important to us. You'll see very many names highlighted in this text on the the screen for you. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Iterina and Tarconicitus, and Licinius, Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene, Um, And then we'll move into verse number two. But I want you to see all of these names. Let me ask you something. What does this verse mean to you? If you're honest, you're going not very much, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know these guys. I, you know... uh, names I can't pronounce. You know, if if, if pastor can't spit them out clearly, there's no way I'm going to uh, type things. How often do we come to passages like this in the Scripture... And we just buzz right over them. Pretty common, right? Like that, that ain't that ain't nothing important. Let's just let's just move on and get to the good to the good stuff. This stuff's not really really important. We get to the the verse and someone in history with a difficult name to re- pronounce was here and blah 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 blah. What whatever. Listen to me very carefully, because this is important. Teenagers, listen to me very carefully, because this really applies to you this morning. And they're, they're looking at me like, yeah, right. Listen. It is these passages that actually solidify and strengthen our faith. You say, how is that so? Why is that so? Why is that important? Because I want you to understand that faith, listen now, faith is not believing without evidence. Do you hear me? Faith is believing because of the evidence. In other words, the word faith has become so abused and misused in our culture today. So often when we use the word faith, 
our mind goes to some type of mystical belief system that, that we just believe without seeing. We just believe without knowing. We just, it, you just have to, to believe, and whatever you believe is okay, and, and whatever I believe is okay, and, and there's really no foundation to our belief. That is completely untrue. That is totally against what the Bible teaches, totally against what we see in the world. Faith is trust in the evidence that you see to help you with what you cannot see. There is evidences that prove these truths in the Word of God. So, why is this so important? Why is this so huge? Because, listen, listen let, me, let me just preface it this way because I really want to get this. Folks, we are one generation away from Christianity being extinct. Do you understand that? It's always been that way. It will always be that way. But I'm telling you right now, there is an onslaught against our children in our world today. Our children are leaving the church and, and, and getting into high school and they're getting into college and they're walking away from the faith in groves. Why? Because they can't defend this mystical faith they think that we believe in. We don't believe in a mystical faith. We believe in an evidentiary faith. There is evidence for every single thing that we believe in. There is evidence for everything that we say is Christian and in Christianity. But there's a group out there today, they're called the New Atheists. They come on the scene after 9-11, and they've been on the scene and been, you may not have heard of them, you may not have read their books, but I'm telling you what, they have changed our culture. They have drastically changed our culture. They have changed your children's culture. As I was studying this this, this very week, uh, and I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, as Sophie and I were going to school, I just asked her, I said, honey, does anybody ever, do you guys talk to your friends about Jesus? Do you ever talk about Jesus? Yeah, I bring up Jesus. What do your friends say about Jesus? They don't believe in him. Most of my friends don't believe in God, and she is only in the fifth grade, y'all. Right? This is where our culture is going. This is where it is. Listen, these names here, I'm making a, a, a point here on these names because these are not just names in a story. This is not just a storybook. This is a, hey, yeah, I can say it, I'm so worked up about it. This is a historical book. The history in this book has been proven to be accurate. It's not just, we just read the stories and we go, oh, that's Bible. Uh, you know, it's not real world. That's Bible. It's not real world. No, the Bible is real world. These events in scriptures are not fairy tales. They're not just some man-made spiritual book outside of time and reality. Each name listed here is a real person of history. Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar of Rome. He was a real person. He was a real person in history. You see, Christians forever have just brushed over these passages as hard names to pronounce but of no significance. And then someone comes up to them and says something like this, well, we really don't have any proof that Jesus ever existed. Really, you know, that's just your Bible. Your Bible is just a book of stories. There's nothing really true in your Bible. The Bible is just mysticism. It's just that religious stuff. But, but when we go back in history, we can't find Jesus. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. 
because you can study Jesus Christ in history. And every ancient historian that is out there that's true to their name says that Jesus actually lived. So I kind of blew my little, my little joke here to keep you involved. So here's, here's what I'm going to back up here and say to you. When someone tells you that Jesus is not real, I'll change it up here just a little bit to make it a little more funny for you. Are you ready? Are you, so now you're prepared. You can laugh with me now, right? Okay. When someone tells you that Jesus is not real, look them in the eyes and say, go eat rocks. Right? Say baloney. Right? right say it loud say it proud okay there you go why because Luke in his gospel gives us very accurate historical data that can be easily verified outside of scripture you see listen church we understand that the bible is God's word and it is accurate however our world has moved far far away from that premise a hundred years ago Someone would say, hey, that's the good book, and we're going to listen to what it has to say. Today, most people want to throw it in the trash in our world. It's not relevant for today. It doesn't tell us anything. It's not any good. It's not verifiable. Absolutely it is. Luke has done his homework and has given us not just accurate historical names, but high-ranking officials of that day so that we can go back historically and prove that the Bible lines up historically. Now listen, listen to me very carefully. I'm not saying we need external sources to prove the Bible. I'm saying the Bible is so right and so good that it matches up with the historical truths that are out there. You hear me? So this is what I did this week, just so that you know. This is what I did. Five minutes, that's all it took me, five minutes. I went to Google and I typed in every single one of these names on Google. You know what I found? I found accurate historical data on every person that's listed in that verse. I found out who they were. I found out their role in history. I found out the years they lived. I found out the years that they held their leadership positions. So much so that I can tell you with great certainty when John the Baptist's ministry began based upon history and looking up when these people lived and what they did. According to the historical data, the time that all of these men that Luke mentioned, especially Tiberius Caesar, the ruler of Rome, served, that John began his ministry in late 28 A.D. or early 29 A.D., somewhere within that period, at the end of the year or the beginning of the year. Subsequently then, Jesus began his ministry in late 29 A.D. and early 30 A.D. I know that because Luke has given me those who were in leadership in those days that I can go back and verify that, hey, listen, which also leads us to the fact that we know that Jesus died on the cross somewhere between 33 and 34 A.D. And to confirm that, look at verse number 2. Verse number 2 goes on and says, During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the, uh, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Annas was the high priest who was the high priest up to 18 A.D. So before then, his reign ended as high priest in 18 A.D. Check this out. I learned this historically. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. I learned that through history, right? See, I'm telling you. As the son-in-law of Annas, he reigned from 
18 or 19 A.D. after Annas did, and served up to 37 A.D. That's when he ended, which means that he was high priest when Jesus was crucified around 33, 34 A.D., as is later recorded in Luke's Gospel. What's my point? God's Word is absolutely and incredibly accurate. History aligns with the Word of God, but listen to me very carefully. And teenagers, listen to me very carefully. Young adults, listen to me very carefully. Our faith is never a blind faith, but a faith that is proved by physical and spiritual evidence. Don't allow any person with a bunch of letters behind his name say to you, well, Jesus is not real, or we don't have any proof that Jesus is real, or just go Google it and you will find the history. I'm sick and tired of our students leaving and believing just some type of mystical thing about Jesus and getting in when the real world says, listen, I have proof. You don't have anything. The world doesn't have proof. The Word of God is what it claims to be. And so we see here Luke's historical accuracy. And that's, I just wanted to really hit that today. And let's move into now who John the Baptist is, knowing that he is an accurate person and his message is accurate. So John begins his ministry around 28, 29 A.D. And let's look at what the Bible says. What is his ministry? Verse number 3. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We see here John's ministry laid out, and once again, so very important, we see the sovereignty of God. We see God's control at this time. Just as everything happened exactly as God had laid out for the birth of Christ, remember, we looked at all of that historical fact and Jesus being born when he was where he was and, and the fullness of time that he was born, God orchestrated all of that. Thirty years down the road, we now have John the Baptist coming on the scene, and again we see the hand of God taking care of that and having that in control that John will be the precursor to Jesus' ministry. Can I make this point very clear to you? God is always in control. Listen very carefully. If he did it in Jesus' day, if he did it in the Old Testament, if he did it with John the Baptist, he's still working it out today in our lives. He's still taking care of things today. And what's so amazing about this is that Luke, in his historical studies, doesn't just go back to just eyewitnesses, but now he goes back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah, who prophesied over 700 years before John came on the scene. And Luke goes, oh, let me just tell you what Isaiah said back there. This is who John is right here. John is fulfilling that. John is uh, giving this and, and is preparing the way. And so I just jotted down these words. I hope that you'll take them to heart. We can have absolutely incredible trust in God. 
when our life feels like it's out of control, when things in this world feel like they're just spinning like crazy, when everything falls apart, God is still in control. But who is John? Who is John in this passage? I want to share something with you uh, about John that maybe you've never thought about uh, before. Uh, again, uh, we, we are in the New Testament here, absolutely in the New Testament. This is uh, the New Testament that, that God has given, but John literally is the last Old Testament prophet. John, um, even though John was born in the priestly line under Zechariah, he did not address Israel as a priest. Although he could have worn priestly robes, he wore camel's hair and a leather belt. And the camel's hair is representative of the, of the prophet who would come to bring bad news to the children of Israel. Uh, the camel's hair obviously was itchy. It wasn't designer clothes or anything along those lines. It was to represent sackcloth. Remember what they would put when they were mourning, when they would go tell people something that God is judging them? They would wear sackcloth and ashes and, uh, in the Old Testament. Well, John in the New Testament wore camel's hair and went out and preached. Instead of preaching in the temple like he could have, he preached in the wilderness. And the reason why he did that and why that is so significant is that his clothes uh, and his, where he preached was a sign that God was moving away from the temple of the Old Testament and moving into a new covenant with His people. And so we see here that John is the last Old Testament prophet, and the reason why or the purpose that he was preparing the way for the Messiah was this. John's message was a, was a message of repentance, making a way so that they would see they needed a Savior. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. But John prepared the people through his important and powerful message. This is the whole purpose of John. This is his ministry now. What John is doing is he's going forward. He's going into the wilderness. He is preaching. He's not in the temple. People are being drawn to him as he preaches. Charismatic preacher out in the wilderness. Everybody's going out uh, to find him. The big preacher of the day. So what would you think John's message would be if he was the big preacher of the day and everybody wanted to come out of the city, come out to the wilderness, and come and see John? You would think he'd be like, listen, hey, God's got something good for you. I want you to know this is some good stuff. I want you to be prosperous and healthy and wealthy. and all." That's what John's message, right? So he drew everybody out there? I hope you're shaking your head no. I really hope that. We come to verse 7 i got to keep you thinking here. I love this. I've thought about starting a sermon off this way, but never have. He said, he said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, so glad you're here. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of of vipers. In other words, you filthy, rotten, disgusting sinners. You're vile, wretched, and wicked, and I'm warning you, God's judgment is upon you. I am pretty confident, not only because of when John lived and when Dale Carnegie lived, but he never read his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. John had a hard message, a straightforward message. John did not beat around the bush. He didn't say, I think you have a sin problem. He said, no, you're a sinner. 
point blank. Your, in, our, in our politically correct world, we could not say that, but he did. Now listen to me very carefully. He was straightforward. He called them out uh, as being sinners, but listen to this. It was the right message for the day. God was in it, and people responded. It was exactly what God wanted John to do. John called them on the carpet, and he said, you are sinners. Why is this so important? I'll show you exactly. Verse number 8. He says, you brood of vipers. He goes on and says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able for these stones to raise up from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You see, there's a problem with the children of Israel, a real deep-rooted problem. And that's why he was so bold to tell them to repent, to change, to change their ways. And the statement that he makes here in verse number 8 really is to all of the children of Israel, but more to the leadership than anybody else. You see, the children of Israel, and especially the religious leaders, believed that because they were the descendants of Abraham, because they were heirs of Abraham, that they were very, very special. And they had a very special relationship with God. And we know that to be true. There is a special relationship that the children of Israel have with God. But John is making a specific point. What they said or what they believed that because they were special, they had a special in with God. Because I am an Israelite, I am already on my way to heaven. Because I am a descendant of Abraham, I know that I will go uh, to heaven. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I act. It doesn't matter what goes on in my life. I know because I am a descendant of Abraham, I am going to heaven. And John, in no uncertain words, said, you better check that because it's not true. You may believe that, you may think that, but that is not true. And what's so interesting today, how many of you ever heard the term that history repeats itself? How many of you know we see the same exact thing today in our culture? The children of Israel believed that they were special. How many of us as Americans think we're special? How many of us think that because of certain circumstances in our lives that we're just, we're just going to make it, we're just in? John said there's no Abrahamic exception clause to the children of Israel. Listen very carefully. There is no exception clause because you are who you are. You're not in just because. There's no exception clause to, to the repentance of your sin. You are not in because you're an American. You're not in because your grandpa or some other relative was a preacher. You're not in because your aunt was a missionary. You're not in because your brother was an elder. You're not in because you come to church when it fits into your schedule. Repentance is the first step and the only step to salvation. No one can do that for you. No one can take your place and you are not exempt from repenting of sin just because you think you are someone important. I heard a politician say, you might know, don't say who this is. I was amazed when I heard it. I didn't read it, but someone said this to me, so I hope I'm reporting it correctly. But they said that when they get to the pearly gates of heaven, they're just going to walk right in because they deserve to be in heaven. What arrogance. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve 
heaven. And without repentance of sin, without uh, having repented of our sin and seeking forgiveness, we cannot have salvation. That's John's message. That's his whole message. He says, listen, you have to understand that before you can be saved, you're a sinner. We all are. It's the bad news. It means that we've all chosen to do something wrong. We've all made mistakes, if you want to use that term, but the reality is is we've all chosen to go against God's commandments. All of us. And as a result of that, we must repent. And so then he says in verse number 9, he says, let me lay it out completely for you. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, judgment is already upon you. Judgment is already here. He's saying, listen, judgment is not getting ready, but the first chop of the axe has already happened. If you do not repent and change, you cannot bear good fruit. If you cannot bear good fruit, you will be cut off. So John doesn't beat around the bush. You're sinful, and your sin is destroying you. It wasn't a very positive message, but it had great repercussions if they would hold on. So he says, repent and show that you truly mean it. Repent and give some evidence of it. Listen, repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is turning from sin. It is turning from the sin you committed, and it is not turning back towards it. It is showing that there is a difference. So John continues here in verse number 10, and look at what he says. He lists out different people in the crowd, and we're just going to read through this. And in verse number 10, when the people heard this, this is, this is how you know God is working. Because John is blunt and straightforward, and it cut them to the heart because the Holy Spirit was working. And the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? I think it's so very interesting that they didn't get angry because John called them a a brood of vipers. John didn't call out their sin. I think we see the power of the Holy Spirit working here, and as a result of that, they were convicted. How many of us, can I say as believers... That when we hear someone chastise us with sin in our lives and we get angry at that person, how many of us are actually quenching the Holy Spirit? How much of us are, our anger is really at the Holy Spirit because God is revealing that? So John says this to them and the crowd asks him, what then shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors, remember tax collectors were the worst and worst of sinners. Also uh, came to be baptized, he said to to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came to him, these are Roman soldiers, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money uh, from anyone by threats of false accusations. And be content with your wages. In other words, we see here that John goes through and he says, the, says this to all of them. If you genuinely, truly repent, 
Then come and receive my baptism of repentance, which is a testimony of you actually repenting. But after you get out of the water, it's not enough that you've just been baptized. Live now the way you're supposed to live because you repented of your sin. True repentance always brings change. If there's no change, there's no true repentance. True repentance always causes us to change. It is turning from what is sin, and it is turning to God. That's why the Puritans always wanted proof of salvation. They want, if you say that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your life should show it, and it should happen as well. And so true repentance always brings change. Now, there's a problem with John's message. And there is a problem. John's message was underneath the Old Covenant still. John's message couldn't be fulfilled within the person. How many of you know that even when we repent and even when we, we say that we're sorry, even though when we try to change, that eventually, if we are just still dealing with our own sin nature, we are drawn back? You see, John's problem was is that he was preparing the way and this repentance and change would not and could not last because the Savior had not come yet. So John's whole purpose is to show them and to show you today and show me today, he's at the beginning and that is this, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. John says, I'm not that Savior. I'm telling you, He's coming. And we're going to see that next week as we look uh, further. But John is saying, you must recognize that you are a sinner. And church today, if you are not saved, first and foremost, you need to recognize that you're a sinner. Because that's mean. No, it's a diagnosis. It's not a judgment. The doctor doesn't say to you, you have cancer as a judgment. He says, you have cancer because it's a diagnosis. And I'm telling you today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are considered a sinner and you need a Savior. John's message came up short because the Savior hadn't come. I can give you the rest of the story because the Savior has come. And let me do that. What's the purpose? What's the takeaway for us? Pastor, you did a good job teaching what John taught. I feel pretty miserable right now. Way to go. Right? Right? Came to church, I got all stepped on, it's a good day, right? No, ready, ready? The Savior came, and there's grace. The Savior came, and there's grace. So what can we take home from this? Well, the truth is this, listen now, the truth still remains, sin is a very serious matter. Saved or lost, sin is still a very serious matter. Sin is not a laughing matter. It is not a scoffing, not something we scoff at. It's not something we are flippant with, something that we abuse by saying, well, I'll go and commit this sin and ask forgiveness later. How many of you know that's an abuse of grace? I'll just do it. God will forgive me. And you know what's scary about that? God will. <laughs> God will. But what a slap in the face of God. What, what a dumbing down of His grace. I'll just go commit the sin and then I'll ask forgiveness later. That's abuse. Sin is serious. 
We must do all that we can to avoid it, but when we do sin, because we know we do sin, as I read in John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we must repent. We must not just say, I'm sorry. We must turn from that sin. You see, the huge difference between those that heard John's message and you that are hearing the message today is, yes, while we are still sinners, Christ came and died for us. Grace came from heaven, embodied in Jesus Christ, bore our sins on His body, paid the price for our sins so that we now can receive forgiveness. You see, here's the reason why John is preaching and the Holy Spirit is telling you to repent. Not because of the fact that you're a horrible sinner, even though we all fit that bill. It's because God wants to forgive. God desires to forgive. God loves to... You know what God's greatest joy in doing is forgiving you of your sin. God's not up there wanting to tear you down, destroy you. He's like, I know you've done this. I know that you've messed up. It hurts you. It hurts me to see it hurt you. Come to me. Repent of that sin and I'll wipe it white as snow. Wipe it as far as the east is from the west. I will completely forgive. I will completely release you of that. We today have grace freely offered. Listen to me very carefully. No matter what you have done in your life, no matter how bad you have sinned or you see, think that you sinned or what you have actually have done, no matter if others can forgive you or not, when you repent, God's grace is always sufficient. Always sufficient. Always. Always sufficient. And then as John has said, as once we have dealt with sin and we have repented and sought forgiveness, then we are to turn. We are to bear fruits keeping with repentance. Sin is serious. Don't play with it. Don't take it lightly. When we do choose sin, repent and receive the wonderful forgiveness that God gives. It begins with salvation. You know that's what salvation is? That's all salvation is. God's greatest desire to forgive you of your sin and to give you a eternal relationship with Him. You say, God's so mean. He's such a mean judge. He wants to tell me how horrible I am, how mean I am. No, it's not a judgment. It's a declaration of truth. And He doesn't stand there wanting to judge you and tear you down. He stands there going, I freely offer you grace. I freely offer you forgiveness. If you will repent, I will bathe you in forgiveness. If you will repent, I will wash away every horrible thing that has happened in your life and the sin that you have committed and the bad choices that you have done, and we will wipe them as far as the east is from the west, and I will set you on the pathway to heaven. That's what salvation is. That is what God is calling to you. And believer, that is what we have. And because we have that, when we choose sin as a follower of Jesus Christ, God still stands there and says, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to forgive. John preached the gospel and gave a baptism of repentance. 
That repentance never goes away while we're here on the earth. We need to continually seek it in our lives because we choose sin. But when we do, God is faithful and God is just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God hates sin, but he loves to forgive. Would you receive that forgiveness today? Would you simply call out to him the best way you know, Lord, I'm a sinner. I ask that you, I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. I ask you to save me. And you know what God says for every person that will pray that? Yes. Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Your sins are forgiven. They are washed away. Will you stand with me in God's house today? Father, sin is horrible, very difficult to talk about, and it affects every single one of us, including myself. Oh God, I'm sorry for the sins that I commit. Oh, but God, I'm so thankful, so thankful that you stand ready and willing to forgive. Lord, there may be someone here that maybe has never accepted you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they never understood that they're a sinner. Maybe they always thought that was a judgment upon them, Lord, but that's not what that is. Father, today I pray that they repent. They just ask forgiveness of their sin. They put their faith and trust in your death, burial, and resurrection. And God will just call out to you and ask for salvation. And God, I know you will say yes. Because that's the God you are. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Bless now this week as we go. Use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.